This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Every day we hear Christian catchphrases, a kind of Christianese, if you will, made up of slogans, compressed ideas about God or faith, that we drop into everyday conversations about life. Catchphrases like, the devil made me do it, or Jesus, take the wheel. And after all, what would Jesus do? What do we really mean when we say that? Well, let's take a look at some common Christian catchphrases and what the Bible has to say. Well, I don't know if there's anything that creates misdirection and confusion faster or quicker than misquoting or quoting someone or something out of context all together. I know every parent has gone through this and wishes that they had a nickel for every time that their kids said, but dad said to something that dad never meant for that to have said to in that situation. And yes, I am speaking from personal experience, Judah, Jonathan, <laughs> Seth, Malachi. And certainly every employer wishes that they had a dime for every time an employee uh, replaced that key word of sometimes with always or never And certainly every politician wishes that they had the maximum campaign contribution allowable under federal law for every time that they were only half quoted in the news cycle. And although the scriptures don't need a dime, they are often misquoted, quoted out of context, to the hazard and to the confusion of many, many of us. And this is really the crux of the problem with having a catchphrase Christianity shaping your faith. Because there's so many of these phrases that fall into this category of a misquote or or something just being quoted way out of context altogether. See, a catchphrase, or its user, often takes some verse of Scripture and cuts out a couple of key words and then tweaks a couple of others uh, and, and then proceeds to apply it on everything other, under the sun rather liberally. No nuance, no context, just slather on another coat of phrases. And when this happens, the unsuspecting Christian experiences confusion like a dense fog settling into certain areas of their life. It creates all kinds of dangerous hazards on the road ahead for them and for those around them, for us. And this is particularly true in the case of today's final catchphrase, and I want to examine with you, and it's this, God won't give you more than you can handle. God won't give you more than you can handle. Today, we're going to try to put this catchphrase then in the vice grip of God's word. See if we can't straighten it out. Let's do that together and start by turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Open up your Bibles to that. As we do, we'll aim to put this catch-all catchphrase back into the right context with the right emphasis that it should have carried 
had not cut out certain words. As we do, uh, we'll hopefully disperse some of the confusion, some of the fog, and make clear some of the dangers as we look at the lesson that we actually should have learned from this passage originally. Now, in this passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we have the Apostle Paul, and he has been uh, warning the church there in Corinth, hence the name Corinthians. That's where we get that from. And to explain this warning, uh, Paul has been using and drawing on all these uh, Old Testament examples, several of them, nine of them to be precise, without even pausing to explain any of them for us. So this morning, if you're a bit unfamiliar with your Bible, I have good news and bad news. The good news is I'm not going to unpack all nine of those in the middle of today's message for you. The bad news is not, I'm not going to unpack any of the nine of those in the middle of today's message for you. So although I'm leaving you with a little bit of homework from this uh, morning, uh, I am going to be staying focused on what was the point that the apostle was after here. And you probably need the practice of studying those things anyway. So, so let's dive into it. Verse 1 of chapter 10 says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, in this, these first five verses, Paul is beginning this warning by working to uh, develop a connection, to draw a connection between the Israelites in ancient Israel and the church there in Corinth, pointing out how they're actually a lot alike. Uh, Most of us suffer from uh, historical snobbery, where we look at people in the past and we think that we're smarter or we're better or we're more faithful than they were back then and so forth. Uh, And perhaps the Corinthians did too. Um, But Paul starts to explain his warning here by showing that the Christians, just like the Israelites, have received all kinds of spiritual blessings, all kinds of spiritual gifts, all kinds of spiritual experiences and so forth. And yet, that didn't stop God from disciplining Israel. He moves on, verse 6. He says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Now pause. In, In these six verses, now Paul is advancing his point. He's moving it forward to say that while they had received all those gracious gifts from God, they still sinned and were disciplined as God's people. But as a Christian, a part of the people of God, the ones on whom the end of the ages has come, they are now standing, as it were, at the front of the ship. They're at the front of the line. 
And he's encouraging them then to learn from Israel's past failures. Paul says, don't be historical snobs. Learn something. What? Learn what? That's where he takes us in verse 12. He says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's his point. He's been leveraging these examples to make the point about temptation. And it's here that we find our catchphrase. It's been carved out of verse 13. You can see how with a few tweaks and a few dropped words that this catchphrase was created, that God won't give you more than you can handle. But a very fair question to pose of this saying is simply, more what? More what? Just more? Just fill in the blank with what more you want? Just more what? It almost sounds like this catchphrase is saying that God won't allow any challenges in life to come your way that you can't handle. I think that's actually how it's frequently used too. And that's a major change of emphasis from this passage and this context. After all, in reality, a Christian will be faced with challenges that they can't handle. But in those challenges, they won't be faced with temptation to sin that there won't be a way out of. You can see an explicit example of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Listen to how Paul says this. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were, catch this, so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, not on ourselves, not that we can handle it, not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. That's a contrast. Neither of these passages is saying that all that's needed for you to be able to handle life is just for God to not give you too much. And what a dangerous idea that that is actually in the face of temptations that come with the various trials, the challenges. And as it encourages us then towards self-sufficiency in the exact moment when we need desperately to need uh, to rely on God's faithfulness and on God's deliverance. So let's clear up some confusion that's created by this catchphrase by examining the lesson that we should have learned from our passage. See, the focus of this text instead points us to the core truth, and that's this, that we need to be warned about temptation, but be comforted by God's provision. We need to be warned about temptation, but we need to be comforted by God's provision here. And that's the truth. Temptation isn't sin. It's not sin, but it is very serious, which means that you need to be warned about the dangers of temptation. To that end, ancient Israel is standing there like an older brother saying, learn from my failures. Don't don't do it the way I did it. 
Don't we wish all of our older brothers would actually have, you know, been honest enough to say that? But, but because of Christ's work, we can learn from their failures. This is where the comfort of God's provision comes into play. Listen, friend, you, you may feel stuck in sin. That every time that that lure of temptation is dropped in front of you, cast in front of you, you bite. But you need to know that you may have bitten on that same temptation 99 times, taken the hook, but Jesus has not abandoned you. He still loves you. If you belong to him, he will not let you go. For you are his. Be comforted, even right now, that you might be locked in a bitter cycle of churning and complaining, or some sexual sin, or the idolatry of wrong priorities, or have just utterly distrusted God's word altogether. Now, I know that in considering a rescue in that situation, a change in those circumstances, you can often be left only thinking of the potential consequences that you will be faced if you come clean. But friend, those consequences are peanuts in comparison to the consequences to come. They are nothing in comparison. But thankfully, that doesn't have to be your end. You can repent. You can cooperate with Christ's means for your transformation today. His provision through his death and his resurrection has made a new way. There's hope. There's hope. So submit. Quit pretending to be standing tall and handling it all. You don't have to constantly be stuck in the sin. And this passage, it dives right then into that reality, dealing with how easily tempted we are as Christians to sin, but that God has limited how much you may be tempted and provided us with a way to not take the bait. And so then a Christian is to be warned about temptation, but comforted with God's provision with it. Let's unpack this specific warning in view here. And then the provision that God is creating what we should do with each of those things. First, let's look at the warning in this passage. The warning here is dealing with a presumptive mindset with temptation. A presumptive mindset with temptation. That's the right emphasis with this text. It's what's at the heart of the warning about temptation. It's at the heart of this text, and it's actually also what's at the heart of the problem with our catchphrase that simply looks to you and I alone to handle the more that we face. But let me show you this from the text. As we examine the first five verses of this passage, you'll notice that there's a repetition. Uh, five times, in fact, uh, fact, Paul emphasizes that all of the people of God experience these amazing things. He's purposely doing that, building this connection to address all of the church in Corinth. And church this morning is for all of us. Being a recipient of God's gracious spiritual gifts does not put any of us, in whatever form those gifts are, above the warning here. So church, don't think that becoming then less attuned to temptation in your life is some kind of sign of spiritual maturity. Look back at verse 12 with me. In fact, this is the key verse to this passage. It says, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. 
The word stand in the Bible usually refers to someone with regard to their standing before God, their position before God and his judgment. The caution then is for someone who has become presumptive about their standing by grace with God. They've begun to take it for granted. They've become secure in their position and in their power for the wrong reasons. They look at their spiritual gifts. They look at their spiritual blessings. They look at their experiences, and they comfort themselves. They pad their security. For example, you know, sometimes I hear people say very presumptive comments about how accomplished in their faith they are and what they've done. And depending on the circumstances, when I hear those things, I cringe. And I think, watch out. Watch out for spiritual pride. If you try to tell someone in that zone otherwise, then you better watch out uh, because Jesus warned about people turning and trampling you in moments like those. But you know, presuming upon our own accomplishments is something that any one of us can do verbally or just mentally. Just mentally. Thinking back, I can think of moments of insecurity when I have felt my pride threatened. I know I can start in that moment to build my list, to start listing out the accomplishments, start listing out what I've done. Those are dangerous moments. If that's where we turn to, we need to watch out for spiritual pride from a presumptive heart. Spiritual pride like the Corinthians were struggling with and like many of us are struggling with. It's the most deceptive and most dangerous kind of pride. J. Oswell Sanders writes this, saying, Pride takes many forms, but spiritual pride is the most grievous. To become proud of spiritual gifts or leadership position is to forget all that we have is from God, and that any position we occupy is by God's appointment. The victim of pride is often least aware of the sin. Three tests help us identify the problem. The test of precedence. How do we react when another is selected for the position we wanted to fill? When another is promoted in our place, when another's gifts seem greater than our own. The test of sincerity. In our moments of honest self-reflection, we often admit to problems and weaknesses. How do we feel when others identify the same problem in us? Test of criticism. Does criticism lead to immediate resentment and self-justification? Do we rush to criticize the critic? When we measure ourselves by the life of Jesus, who humbled himself on the cross, we are overwhelmed with the shabbiness, even the vileness of our hearts, and we cry, boasting excluded, pride I abase. I'm only a sinner, saved by grace. As long as we remain in the place of pride from our presumptive mindset, we will fail to grasp the warning. But Paul is calling on us in the place when we're thinking, well, I could never... Sin like that, to take heed, to be warned. Temptation is a lot more dangerous than we realize. Temptation is, tends to act like the snake from the Jungle Book movie. Remember the snake? He seems harmless. He seems even soothing. But if you stare into his eyes long enough, watch out. The longer you stare, the more mesmerizing it gets. It may have looked silly at first, But if you look long enough, you become wrapped up 
And the more you become wrapped up, the more potential there is for you to be swallowed completely. Hence, we should join with the Lord's Prayer and ask to not be led into temptation altogether. And our first strategy in the face of temptation should be to flee, to flee from it. Now, though we can struggle and tend to pridefully presume upon our own strength with temptation, we must also not pretend that we are utterly inferior to it because of Christ's power. And it's here that we move from a presumptive mindset with temptation to a provisional mindset with temptation. A provisional mindset. That's the point of verse 11. Israel's failure of sinning through idolatry, sexual immorality, uh, through a distrust of God, and through grumbling, all sins that the Corinthians were struggling with and we're struggling with, are also to be viewed as instructive so that we see then the reality of verse 13, which says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation... He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Temptation, the temptation you're facing, has been seen before. And for the Christian, God is faithful. And he knows how much temptation you can face. His, then this power of temptation has been limited by God's provision. That means that we should resist a prideful superiority to sin that says, I could never sin that way. And we should also resist a prideful inferiority that says the, uh, the temptation was way too powerful. I could never have stood up to it. Ergo, I'm not responsible for giving in to it. It can be tempting to give temptation too much credit. But as a wiser man than me pointed out, as powerful as the desire for sexual temptation presents Someone, the desire for water is greater. The desire for water is stronger. Uh, Or the desire for food or sleep is stronger than the, the desire to complain. Church, there's no need to undercredit or overcredit temptation because of God's faithfulness. As we look at this text, it's clear that a Christian is not to be forever stuck in some sin. Because of Christ's work and provision, temptation to sin is no longer sovereign over a Christian, meaning that a Christian doesn't simply go from uh, being stuck in one temptation to only falling into another sin on the other side of it, that you're simply stuck in sin. Its power has been limited. What great news that is, what comfort that that is to the believer, especially the one who has given into the bait for the 99th time and is looking at the 100th time ahead. To learn afresh that for a follower of Christ, temptation and that sin doesn't own you. It doesn't own you. Its power has been limited, and God has provided another way out. And part of how that provision of limiting temptation's power is brought to bear is as we cooperate with the exit strategy that God is providing. Moving out of the path of temptation, uh, looking away from the mesmerizing eyes of temptation, uh, uh, tuning out the siren's call is all part of how we endure. We intentionally set a guard over our hearts and all the ways that sin desires to stir up the desires in them. Think of it this way. If your married co-worker is flirting with you, run, get out of there. 
Don't stay in that situation. Don't let that desire get going. If you're on a diet, somebody brings a a perfectly crafted cheesecake into the office, run and leave it for me. But in all seriousness, as simple as these examples are, if the temptation is physical, we are to move away from it ourselves or move it away from us. If it persists, don't try to stand tall and handle it all by yourself. Instead, you need to invite another Christian into the situation. Now, if your temptation is with your words, with what's coming out of your mouth, recognize that you're still dealing with the desires of your heart. So work at memorizing scripture and hiding God's word in your heart. If it persists, limit your intake of grumblers or the like. And start to make the practice of amending your speech, purposefully backtracking your speech to fix what's wrong and to celebrate what's good. If your temptation is with your thoughts and your mind, then choose to speak things out loud. Prayerfully wrestle out loud with what you're thinking about. Trust me, what goes on on in your mind is not nearly as intimidating when it is said out loud. And if it persists, work at overflowing your mind with what is good. And in any case, no matter what kind of temptation you're struggling with or what practice you are employing to escape it, to endure it, you must work at stirring up your heart in your affection for Christ. Listen, only a desire for Christ will ultimately overthrow a desire for evil. Only a desire for Christ will ultimately overthrow a desire for evil. Only a heart fixated by and is celebrating in the faithfulness of God will have the opportunity to lay waste to the temptations of this world. I remember living in downtown Chicago for two years when I was in in, uh, college there. Let me tell you, going from a, a small town in Kansas to downtown Chicago is overwhelming. It was an overwhelming experience. Uh, the noise alone, in my mind, was just incredible. And the things that you would hear were just incredible. Uh, the smells were horrible. Uh, if, you're, if you like Chicago, I hope you can at least admit to that one. But um, the temperature and the winds were constantly changing, making it hard to ever feel comfortable in your surroundings. And people on top of that were everywhere. Everywhere. And they were doing all kinds of things, many of which were sad. Some of them uh, were depraved. And it would put your head on a swivel. And, and visually, the place presents beautiful architecture mixed with lurid images and messages. It's all over the place. And I remember thinking to myself, how in the world am I going to navigate this? Uh, how am I going to deal with all the temptations that this poses to a 19-year-old young man? Do you know what turned out to be the best option? Singing. Singing. Whistling. Humming. Songs of worship and praise to God as it went about. Why? It fixated my mind on celebrating the faithfulness of God. It employed God's means to escape and endure temptation. Try it. Try it for yourself in the face of temptation. Or implement one of these other ways with it. Because God's provision offers incredible comfort in the midst of facing temptation. And listen, friend, 
You don't have to stay stuck entertaining temptation until you give in to it. Whether it was the temptation that you intentionally brushed up against knowing it would lead you towards further temptation and sin, or it was the temptation that came and found you that you weren't looking for at all, through no fault of your own, but it's there nonetheless. It doesn't have to win. Because even though we need to be warned about the dangers and power of temptation, we are comforted by God's provision. I think our catchphrase and the right, with the right emphasis and back in the right context should really be, there's nothing God can't handle, so there's no temptation where he isn't faithful. And church, as we return to this truth again and again, let's be sure to celebrate it again and again. Let's pray about that. Father, we recognize that we've fallen short. Your word tells us that we've all sinned. We are all in need of an advocate. And that you have supplied the perfect advocate for us in Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you for it. We thank you for him. We thank you for the work that he's done on our behalf and the hope that it extends us. We pray for those that are part of our flock who are feeling as if they are stuck, that that the sin in their life has, has, has built an entire cage around them that they are stuck in. I pray, Lord, that this morning you would show them the way of escape, that you would show them the way out. I pray that they would recognize that it is only through Christ, it is only as a believer submits to his direction and his way of dealing with things that they would see real freedom. And we pray, Lord, that you would comfort our hearts, that you have not given up on us, you have not walked away from us, that when we have been faithless, you have still been faithful. We claim your word we pray this morning that we would step out in faith to obey it. We pray all this in your son's mighty and matchless name. Amen.